Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Haseeb Qureshi, Managing Partner of Dragonfly Capital. Welcome, Haseeb. Hey, Laura. So last weekend, a DeFi protocol was hacked. DeForce, which is a Chinese uh-huh. DeFi protocol backed by Multicoin Capital, lost $24.9 million via its lending platform, LendFMe. <laughs> and let's not talk about the significance of that name. But anyway, <laughs> what happens with the DeForce attack? Uh, so it's kind of a complicated story, and there's a little bit of a backstory to understand uh, what exactly happened. So it was a busy weekend in DeFi. Um, and so the, the, the story centers around this particular asset called IMBTC, which was the cause of this hack and actually another hack that happened 24 hours before this hack. So uh, let, me, let me just do a little bit of setup. So IMBTC is this, is this, uh, is this token that's basically a BTC peg minted by this company called IM Token, which is a Chinese Ethereum wallet. It's like the biggest Ethereum wallet in the world. And IMBTC is not an ERC-20. It's an ERC-777. So ERC-777 is a new token standard that's kind of an augmentation of ERC-20. So sort of a fancier ERC-20 with a bunch of other bells and whistles. Um, and it turns out those bells and whistles that they added to this token standard makes it behave somewhat differently than an ERC-20. And it's a little bit complicated what exactly those augmentations are, but long story short, what it lets you do is if the contract that integrates an ERC-20 doesn't know that it's integrating with an ERC-777, you can potentially do a re-entrancy attack. A re-entrancy attack, for those of you who remember, is the same attack that attacked the DAO, uh, the sort of the original massive Ethereum hack that resulted in the Ethereum fork. So 24 hours before this lend thing happened, uh, IMBTC, which is an ERC-777, was drained uh, in the Uniswap liquidity pool for IMBTC versus ETH. So basically, somebody was able to take a little bit of this IMBTC and steal all the money in the Uniswap pool. That was that was uh, a balance between ETH and, ERC- and, uh, and IMBTC. So now this was not Uniswap's fault because Uniswap allows anybody to create a pool. So Uniswap was like, well, you know, this is kind of, this is really unfortunate, but... Uh, you know, the, the people who created this pool should have known that it, it was well known in advance that ERC-777s have this problem. So 24 hours later, uh, so, you know, this is really bad. Everybody's talking about this this weekend. 24 hours later, uh, it turns out that some attacker out there was scouring all of DeFi, looking for places where similar type of attacks might have been possible. And it turns out the biggest liquidity pool anywhere for IMBTC was in Lendef. So what is Lendef? 
LendF is a, uh, a Chinese DeFi compound clone that was built by these two guys in China, Mindao Yang, who's a Chinese DeFi investor, and Xu Xian, who's the founder of SparkPool, which is one of the largest Ethereum mining pools. So they're two, you can think of them as like DeFi celebrities in China. Uh, so this was a very hot project. It was widely renowned in China as being like the real breakout DeFi project. Uh, because China doesn't really have any big DeFi contenders. Lendef was kind of their, their, uh, uh, export to the DeFi ecosystem. And if you, if you remember back a few months ago, they were actually brought into some controversy because they copied Compound V1's code, uh, and they were aggressively listing assets into their collateral pool and they sort of added these augmentations as their business model. Uh, and so a lot of people in the West were kind of, you know, pissed off at them as kind of being a derivative project of Compound V1. So, they, uh, they, they, this was also an older version of Compound, right? So Compound has upgraded to Compound V2 since then. Um, and Compound has this very careful listing process where they list, you know, only one asset at a time. They do a risk review. They do all this stuff. And Lendif was a lot more aggressive in all of the assets that they added. And one of the assets they added was this IMBTC. And the reality is that people knew about this reentrancy attack since at least June last year. Uh, actually, I think um, Open Zeppelin, a security research firm, actually published an open source version of this exploit that could have actually worked against Uniswap. And this was back in June last year. So people, if you talk to anybody in security, they know that this is a problem. So what happened was on April 18th, Uniswap was attacked. 24 hours later, almost to the dot, an attacker started draining the Lendef contract. Okay, You can think about this as though basically the attacker is fooling this compound-like protocol into thinking that they have more and more collateral than they really have. And so if they're, you know, putting in a little bit of collateral, they can sort of double it or triple it or quadruple it. And they keep doing that over and over again, taking out bigger and bigger loans until eventually they take out a loan the size of all of the money in the pool. And uh, by the end of about four hours of repeatedly iterating on draining money out of the pool, the entire pool of Lendef was emptied. And the attacker made off with $25 million. Yeah, so... For people who um, are not familiar with that attack, I'll just describe it briefly. And also, I just wanted to say the Uniswap hack uh, from the day before was uh, a loss of $300,000. But essentially, the way this reentrancy attack works is that it's like if you were to go to a bank teller and say, I want to withdraw $100 and your account has $105 within it, then they'll give you your $100. And then, so normally they would give it to you and then update your balance to $5. But in this case, what the smart contract does is it's able to interrupt the teller at that point and request the $100 again. And because the balance in your account hasn't been updated to $5, the bank teller thinks that you still have $100 and like enables you to take out the $100 again. And that's essentially how this these funds were siphoned from the Dow and from <laughs> um, LendFMe and you know these other and Uniswap. Uh, it's just like a small amount every time, but it just keeps going. And the smart contract like is automatic and it works very quickly. That's exactly right. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about also was if the reentrancy vulnerability was known about with ERC seven seven sevens from a year back, then why haven't all the different smart contracts that might be vulnerable upgraded? Like, and also weirdly, like, why would it take somebody so long to even exploit it if it was known for all this time? So that's a great question. Um, it's, it's sort of, you know, people have this kind of efficient market hypothesis thing in DeFi that like, well, everybody in the world can see all these contracts and all the information is out there. Therefore, 
the moment that something vulnerable is on mainnet, it should get hacked. And of course, we see that that's not true, right? It takes some time for somebody to kind of put all the pieces together, right? So a year ago, it was known, and security experts everywhere know that ERC-777 has this issue. But, you know, it's like, okay, maybe then nine months or 10 months later, IMBTC is in ERC-777, and they list on their own Uniswap pool, and it's not that big yet. And not many people in the West know what IMBTC is, right? Uh, and so it, it sort of takes some time for these things to get remembered and integrated in the right way that people realize like, oh yeah, there, there was that attack from a year ago. The real question in my head was it took 24 hours after the Uniswap hack for Lendef, for somebody to put the pieces together, like, oh, I can do this to Lendef as well. Um, and so I have to imagine, you know, there were a bunch of people probably looking for what else can I do? What sort of a copycat attack that I can do? You know, remember with the BZX hack, we saw a copycat attack, like, just you know, a day later, uh, doing the same fundamental kind of thing with flash loans against BZX. Uh, the same thing we, we saw here today, but it took a whole day for that attack number two to happen. And I have to imagine somebody was like practicing, they were playing around with it, they were making sure the attack wasn't exactly the same. There were some different details in how exactly the two contracts are set up, but the overall problem was the same, that the, the contract did not, uh, uh, the contract allowed itself to get interrupted mid-execution with another contract call. And that's the fundamental issue of reentrancy that you have to avoid to fix this thing. So Uniswap knew that this was a problem. And it says in Uniswap, do not listen ERC-777 into Uniswap. Like, that is not supported. Um, uh -huh. Same thing with Compound. Compound reviews all of the assets that they list, and they would never have listed in ERC-777 because they know that it's a problem. But because... Uh, you know, Lendef just didn't have all those pieces and have all the contacts that other people had when they decided to integrate IMBTC. Huh. And that's what led to this thing. And so I'm sorry, are you saying that you know that they didn't know about ERC-777 or you're just... You I'm know, speculating. Did you I mean, okay. I assume they have to had to not know because uh, certainly the, the engineers at Compound were aware of this. Okay. All right. So in a moment, we're going to discuss... Um, the second part of the story, which is the fact that the hacker actually <laughs> returned the money. But uh -huh. first, a quick it's word. It's a pretty from good the, story. <laughs> it is a good story. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Haseeb Qureshi. So wait, actually, before we go to the part about how um, they they gave the money back, I also just want to talk about the fact that like they started conversing with each other through the through these like zero uh, through these um, no value transactions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like some of the messages were a little bit uh, I don't know. To me, it was crazy to watch. Yeah, no, totally. So one of the things to understand about uh, the blockchain, so this is like super old, right? This goes back to Bitcoin days. One of the things that you can add to a transaction is a memo, right? I mean, this is how any like proof of existence thing works, is that you put a $0 transaction on chain, and you put some data into the memo field. So what people started doing after this attack was they started sending $0 transfers to the attacker, 
and they put a memo in the data field. And so if you go into Etherscan, you can, you can do this yourself. You can go into Etherscan, find the attacker's address, and go read some of the $0 transactions, look at the memo field, open it up, and read it in ASCII. And that will show you English text of what was being communicated back and forth as the only way to contact this attacker. Because, of course, you know, you don't have an email address. You don't know. Everybody can see uh, what's being sent to this person. So the first thing that happened was the attacker uh, sent a message to the LendF admin with just the message, better future. Which I Which thought was is so clearly mean. Not, yeah, doesn't, well, well I, I wasn't really sure what that meant, but clearly it was not somebody who spoke native English because that's a weird, very weird phrase. Yeah, but, but I, but say. like, it, so it wasn't very much money. It was like $126,000. And I yes. thought it was like, just like, well, this is my interpretation, but to me, it was kind of like a jerk move where it's like, hey, I stole $25 million from you, but here's a little memento. Better luck next time. Like, yeah, <laughs> I have to like assume that. that's what it was of like, good luck, you know, uh, try to recover, you know, best, best, uh, best wishes. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, so they sent back some packs, some HUSD and some HPTC, which are all like basically centralized stable coins. HPTC is like centralized pegged. Uh, it's Wolby's uh, Bitcoin peg. Um, so they returned those assets, but I would have to imagine because they thought they were going to get censored or like they weren't going to be able to fence the assets once they stole them. Uh, they're also like relatively low liquidity assets, right? Uh, mm. compared to like USDC or other things like that. So I have to imagine it'd be very easy or sorry, it'd be very hard for them to actually extract those assets. I imagine that's why they return them. Um, mm. and so DeForce attempted to get in contact with them by dropping an email address in the, in one of the memo fields to the, to the, to the attacker. And, uh, a bunch of other people also started messaging the attacker upon realizing that this was happening. So you had, um, you had messages from random people saying like, uh, Hey, you know, like, I don't know who you are, but like coronavirus has been really bad for me and my family. This was all my life savings. Like, please do me. You know, there were, there were four or five messages like this. Yeah. Here's one of the quotes. And there's a reason why I picked this one in particular, but anyway, I'll reveal that in a second. It says the virus hurt all of us. Life is not easy. My saving funds on LendF come from bank loans. With it, I will lose my wife and children's exclamation oh point. Please return our funds. God bless you. Okay, so you guys, I don't give investment advice, but do not take on debt to invest in DeFi. Like, what the hell? Yeah, yeah. I just, that just blew my mind. But anyway... Yeah. Keep going. So. Um, agree, agreed. Agreed. Let me just double down on that. Please do not take out bank loans to put into DeFi. I, I <laughs> recommend against that. Um, so, okay. So I, I kind of want to sort of zoom out a little bit, right? Because of course, the moment that all of this happened, Twitter just blew up with, with seeing all of this. Because one of the things about a DeFi hack is that everybody sees it, right? It, it's sort of globally visible. We all are watching the bank robbery in real time. So, that said, like in the, in the social media reaction to this thing, there were two very, very different responses. So the West, like, you know, all of crypto Twitter basically was jeering at all of this. So they blamed it on DeForce. They took this as a referendum on Chinese DeFi. They sort of said, look, you got, you know, you guys had this coming. You stole Compound's code. You don't know what you're doing. Uh, this, this just sort of shows how crappy and shady Chinese crypto is or how Chinese DeFi is or DeForce or whatever, right? China, had the totally opposite response. China actually was very supportive of DeForce. So they rallied behind the project. They saw Mindao and Xu Xin as trailblazers and as having been, you know, taking a proud risk for China. There was a lot of nationalist fervor that we saw 
in the way that people were responding to this hack. So it's actually, um, it, it's very striking reflection of the time right now when actually a lot of nationalistic fervor in sort of, you know, the coronavirus epidemic is getting reflected, I think, in the way that we're dealing with these kind of things in DeFi. So many people in Chinese uh, crypto community vowed to continue supporting uh, uh, Mindao and, and Xuxin, even if they were to revive the protocol, they said, look, we're going to continue to support you guys because what you're doing is so important. So mm. the, the one, okay. yeah, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I'm a little bit confused about that. I think it's a lot of it really has to do with the fact that look, China doesn't have a lot of representation in the DeFi protocols, you know? So even in the layer ones, right? Like there was, uh, uh most of the projects that have really been successful in crypto that are pure tech plays have come from the West. Most of the, the trading, most of the, you know, the really big, you know, mining businesses and trading businesses and lending businesses come from China. But so far, they haven't really been able to get a strong foothold on the technology side. So I think for, for a lot of the mm. Chinese DeFi community and the Ethereum community, they really saw DeForce as those were their guys, you know, and Mindao and Xuxin are very well respected in the Chinese community. So imagine if like, imagine if it was like, you know, Robert from Compound and Rune from MakerDAO go launch a new project together, you know? And yeah, they got hacked and yeah, it was terrible, but like they were your guys, you know? You uh, want to see this thing succeed. And I think that was really the sentiment that people felt in China after seeing this hack. It was a lot of anger at the, at the attacker and at, you know, the, the, the sort of the West for piling onto this thing. Uh, and a lot of, in, in, a lot of support for what they saw as two really genuine entrepreneurs who basically got very unlucky. Okay. Well, so, so let's, let's now move on to, let's talk about how the hacker gave the money back. Yes. Why, so, why do you think that happens? Yes. So I, so I, I will add the caveat that some of this is, is sort of widely reported. And some of this is also, we don't really know the full story because they haven't told us everything. Right. But basically almost immediately after the hack, DeForce reported this to the Singaporean police and began to try to uh, monitor the addresses of the attacker to make, to try to figure out, you know, where are they moving the money? How can we stop this? How can we remediate? So one of the things that anybody who was watching the attacker's address saw was that the attacker immediately started exchanging some of these funds. So they were using DEXs, they were using one inch and Paraswap, which are basically DEX aggregators. Um, so you can think of it like shapeshift or something to start selling some of the assets and moving assets around. They even put some of the USDC in a compound. So it's almost like they were rebalancing their portfolio uh, immediately after <laughs> making this giant hack. So now one of the one of the problems here is that using a platform like One Inch or Paraswap means that uh, uh, the the attacker could have been using their front ends, using their website. If they were using their website, they might have leaked their IP. Mm. So one of the very first things that DeForce did is they contacted One Inch and Paraswap and asked them, "Hey, did 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 you track the attacker when they used your platform?" And, you know, naturally, most of these companies have analytics. They want to know, you know, what people are doing on their, on their product. And it turns out one inch did log the attacker's IP. So one inch revealed, they did not reveal the IP publicly, but they did reveal that they were coming from a Chinese IP and they were using a Mac with English settings enabled. And so one inch got in touch with the Singaporean police and apparently they shared the IP and the Singaporean police started to triangulate on who this attacker was. So same time, parallel thread, DeForce is getting in touch with the attacker. So they get on an email thread and they decide to get on a phone call. And from what I've heard, and I can't verify any of this, but from what I heard, they, they negotiated on the phone and basically there was a little bit of a bluff. So they, they were able to kind of narrow down because the thing is like Chinese DeFi community is not huge. 
right? If this was somebody in China, and you have to imagine it was somebody in China, if like they knew how Lendef worked and they, they were close to the code and they were able to do this attack effectively, like good chance. And also, you know, they wrote better future, right? As like a way of saying like, good luck. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have to imagine like, okay, there's probably a Chinese person and the number of Chinese people who are active in DeFi and are sophisticated enough to pull off this hack probably aren't that many. So mm. there was a relatively small pool of people who they thought this could have come from. And basically, my guess is that they had a, a reasonable idea of like one out of the pool of people who it could be. Uh, they got on the phone with them and they bluffed. And they said something along the lines of, I'm going to guess we know who you are or the Singaporean police knows who you are. They're going to track you down. Uh, you're going to go to prison for a very, very long time if you don't return all of the assets right now. We are watching on chain. You're not going to be able to divest these funds. And the other thing to remember, of course, is that, you know, coronavirus is going on right now. So if you imagine you have just stolen $25 million, you can't leave the country. You can't get away. <laughs> Where are you going to go? Like right now, you know, you are under lockdown just like everybody else. So you are in sort of Wait, uniquely bad not. time to be hacking people. It's true, but you can't leave the country is what I'm saying, right? Like who's, nobody right, is going right, to let right. you leave. So I think the, the attacker probably felt cornered. And they felt like they had no choice. They felt like they'd already given up too much information. And they might not have known uh, how much of information the other people had on them. So uh, what basically at the end of this conversation, the hacker agreed to return the funds. And DeForce agreed that if they returned the funds, they were going to drop any charges. So a couple hours later, the hacker started slowly returning all the funds to the contract uh, until finally all $25 million less transaction fees were finally returned to the DeForce admin. So DeForce then published a blog post saying, hey, we got all the money back uh, and we're going to start a process of refunding all the people who uh, who originally deposited funds into DeForce. And they winded down the contract oh and uh, they, they said they're going to uh, uh, spin up uh, Lendef again once they you know engage in audits and have a full security review and so on and so forth. So that was that was the end of the of the DeForce hacking saga. Had the DeForce hack been pulled off, it would have been, I believe, the third largest hack in, in Ethereum history behind the DAO hack and then the uh, first parity uh, first parity wallet hack. Uh, but I don't know if you count this as being the third biggest hack because technically, you know, they gave all the money back. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this will, will go in the history yeah, books. I have but. no idea how we'll categorize this one. We'll have, we're going to have to create a lot of new categories of things in general in the crypto world. Agreed. Agreed. Um, but wait, one thing I wanted to just backtrack on and ask you about is, are you saying, so So initially when you said that they got on the phone, I thought it was, you know, they connected through the the email and the, and the transactions that they were sending. But yeah. are you saying that between the IP address and, um, and then, sorry, sorry. So from the IP address, they were able to narrow it down to maybe a geography. And then because the community is small, they like even could figure out the person or, or like, do you know what I'm saying? Like when they got on the phone, was it someone who to them was anonymous or was it someone where like, they were like, we know who this person is. So I, I'm not going to pretend to know the details here, but okay. from what I've heard, my understanding was that there was verbal communication between DeForce and the attacker. Okay. And okay. But, so I, but it might have been a video call. Or, or not, or sorry, not, not a video call, but audio call. Yeah, I, I don't know that they knew the person. Okay. Okay. And then I guess the other thing is they were contacting the Singaporean authorities, but if it was an IP address in China, 
then how could the Singapore authorities go after somebody in China? I don't know. Uh, I, I assume it must be because uh, uh, Lendef or uh, Lendef, but DeForest was probably incorporated in Singapore. Uh, but I, I don't know the details there, to be honest. I don't right, know why right, right. the yeah. Singaporean okay. police were involved. Yeah. It may have been that the person was in Singapore. Oh, 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 okay, right. Because I did see some people online saying that this person used a VPN. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's very likely that if this person was using DeFi, uh, uh, was using DeFi uh, protocols that they were using a VPN, and the VPN may have routed their IP into China. Uh, they they may have gotten in touch with the VPN through the Singaporean police, and you know uh, been able to de-anonymize them through 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 that mechanism as opposed to okay. some, some other way. I don't. So I don't know. I don't have the details here. I'm right. just speculating. Right. Okay. Yeah. We're so now we're we're veering away from what we know and and just trying to figure it out <laughs> while on a podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, okay, well, this has been so interesting and really mind-blowing, um, actually. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed this discussion. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Likewise. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Probably the biggest news this week, aside from the DeForce hack, which was covered in the episode was the rollout of the DCEP pilot in China. But since we covered that in last week's news recap, we'll make our main story a coronavirus-related story. First headline, the coronavirus spurs demand for stablecoins. Coinmetrics reports the market cap for stablecoins is now at $9 billion, up by $1 billion since the start of April. Spencer Noon tweeted this out as a handy GIF that shows just how quickly stablecoins have grown over the last couple years, in particular Tether on Ethereum. Additionally, Circle CEO Jeremy Allaire says his company is seeing demand from small and medium-sized enterprises, telling Coindesk, quote, We are getting feedback from Asian market participants that there is more and more demand for USDC from SMEs seeking both the safety and utility of digital dollars. And I also have a link for you from the blog in which the site collated dynamic charts of stablecoins on Ethereum, and they refresh every 24 hours. The charts show that Tether on Ethereum is at more than $5 billion market cap with ever-increasing market share, and that has only accelerated in the last month. And in somewhat related news, Coinbase saw a spike in deposits for $1,200, which coincidentally is the max amount for coronavirus checks. Next headline, why Chinese Bitcoin mining firms are struggling less than three weeks before the halving. Spring is normally a profitable time for miners in China due to April showers making hydropower even cheaper. However, Coindesk reports the downturn in March and in Bitcoin price at about 7000 all month has caused mining farms that offer hosting services to operate below capacity. Writer Wolfie Zhao, a previous guest on Unconfirmed, says, quote, if Bitcoin's price remains at its current level of $7,000 after the halving, older mining equipment is expected to shut down, which would lead to a decrease of the network's hashing power, making it even harder for firms that need customers to fulfill their capacity. We'll have to keep an eye on it to see how this affects the halving. Next headline, it's actually three different sort of related headlines. They're all about product news in DeFi. Next story, Dharma launches social payments. 
Dharma launched a new product called Social Payments, which seems pretty cool. You deposit funds to your Dharma account, find the Twitter handle you want to send funds to, and then send your payment. Dharma says you should also retweet the Dharma bot and tag your recipient so they see the payment. Hilariously, when I was looking into this to put it in the newsletter, I saw that Dharma had sent me $5 via the app, but I actually, I never got notified by Twitter. I don't know. I I feel like the notifications on Twitter don't work very well. But anyway, I will try to claim these funds and update you all next week on how it went. Next headline, Coinbase launches BTC USD and ETH USD price oracles. Recognizing the growth in DeFi and the need for reliable price oracles or trusted feeds of price data, Coinbase launched oracles that obtain price data from Coinbase Pro. As the company says in a blog post, quote, Anyone can publish the prices on-chain, and since the data is already signed by Coinbase's private key, there is no need to trust the publisher. Using the Coinbase Price Oracle public key, anybody can verify the authenticity of the data. Next headline, DYDX bringing perpetual contract markets in BTC to DeFi. DYDX entered a private alpha for a perpetual contract market for BTC USDC which, surprise, surprise, is not going to be available in the U.S. However, DYDX says, quote, Perpetuals are the most widely traded product in all of crypto, with daily trade volume in the billions of dollars, eclipsing spot trading volume in 2019 as the most popular way to gain crypto price exposure. Given that BTC is the most widely traded crypto assets, asset, this could prove to be quite popular. Next headline. Renaissance Technologies Considers Trading Bitcoin Futures Renaissance Technologies, a $75 billion hedge fund reputed to have, quote, the best math and physics department in the world because of its focus on hiring from the science field as opposed to Wall Street, stated in a regulatory filing that it is considering trading CME's cash-settled Bitcoin futures. Richard Krebe of Numerai told Coindesk, Renaissance and firms like it are very good at working with time series data and already understand corn futures and oil futures and trade all those markets. So I don't think it means they have any thesis on Bitcoin. I don't believe they are going to be long Bitcoin or something, but it's definitely worth taking on. Next headline, Binance plans a smart contract platform. Add this to the list of potential Ethereum killers, the Binance smart chain, as outlined in a new white paper. Binance denied to Coindesk that it was an Ethereum killer, but it does plan to be fully compatible with the dominant smart contract platform. Coindesk says, quote, Binance Smart Chain would give the new smart contract layer direct access to an ecosystem filled with relatively mature applications and community, meaning Ethereum. Fun bits. Hello world, meet Shifi. There's a new educational course to teach women about DeFi, and you guessed it, it's called SheFi. The group is also pooling funds that they agree to donate to a nonprofit at the end of a course. As a woman in crypto, I know I find myself wondering why there aren't more women, because there isn't anything about crypto that seems inherently more male than female to me. So this might be worth checking out to see if it would be helpful for you or anyone you know. Second fun bits. Crypto Twitter bingo. Speaking of women, She256 tweeted out a hilarious crypto Twitter bingo card. And sadly, I had a bunch of squares such as have created or been on a crypto podcast, 
have theorized who Satoshi is and have lost your seed phrase before, but I did manage to get a bingo. However, you should definitely look up this card in the show notes and play. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Haseeb and the LendFMe hack, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Whatever your favorite crypto meme is, Lambos, Unicorns, or the Guy Fox mask, it's probably on the Unchained Rabbit Hole t-shirt. Check it out at shop.unchainedpodcast.com. And also, be sure to check out our hats, mugs, and stickers. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.